And we had two blue slips last week to do with our series in John, which I just wanted to cover before we come to our passage uh, in Genesis. Uh, The first one asked about who the identity of the prophet uh, is in uh, John chapter 1. So it talks about a prophet that that was to come. Um, In Acts chapter 3, it seems to, to hint that this is all the prophets from Samuel onwards. So it mentions, uh, quotes the, the passage from, uh, from uh, Deuteronomy and says, these are the prophets that are to come from Samuel onwards, people have prophesied and look forward to the Christ. So it seems as though there's, there's multiple people as we've gone through scripture. But then in Acts 7, uh, it hints at Jesus. So it doesn't mention Jesus specifically, but it mentions that Moses was the one who was promised the prophet that would come after him. And it seems to be pointing uh, at Jesus. This would make sense of a lot of the uh, allusions that you get in the New Testament to Jesus being like Moses. So the most obvious and and famous one is uh, Jesus feeding uh, the 5,000 in the wilderness, uh, even though there's green grass for them to sit down on uh, in in those passages. So there's a sort of desert that he's feeding them with bread, but it's not quite a desert because there's grass. So it's all a little bit strange, but it seems as though Jesus being portrayed as the new Moses, the next Moses, the, the bigger, better Moses. And that's certainly what happens in Hebrews as well. So he, he is the prophet that was to come, the, the final one of that line. That's why we traditionally have the, the offices of Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's all three. The second one uh, asks whether uh, I believe in the one. Uh, so we had at the beginning of our, uh, uh, our talk last week about, you know, do you believe in the one? Uh, that romantic person that, you know, you're destined to be with. Uh, they asked, you know, do you actually believe in that? Because I didn't mention whether I did or I didn't. Um, I want to say yes and no. Yes, I do believe that for those who uh, are to get married, God does have a person in mind for them. Uh, God is sovereign. He orders all events in history. He organises all things. So yes, he does have uh, somebody, if you are uh, to be married. Not everybody is to be married. Jesus wasn't married. There wasn't one for him. That didn't make him any less of a human being. Uh, actually, he was completely fulfilled uh, as a single man. Um, so I want to say, yes, he does in a way. Uh, but with two provisos, this is sort of the, the no sign. One proviso is that you can't know who that person is until you wake up with them on the first morning of your honeymoon. That's the only time you can really know who that person is, who is the one. Up until that point, you can't know. So there's a dangerous uh, idea sometimes, you know, well, I know I'm going to marry this person, so I'm going to treat them like we're married, we're going to sleep together, we're going to live together, we're going to do all these things. But actually, we can't know until the morning that we wake up uh, on our honeymoon that that person is definitely the one that God has got planned for us, because the way that God showed that they were planned for us is that we married them. And then the second proviso is that if you are here this morning and you are married, the one for you is your spouse. That is who God wants you to be married to. So again, there's some sort of uh, dangerous idea sometimes that, you know, well, I'm married to this person, but really I'm destined to be with somebody else. But as long as you are married to them, there are cases uh, in the Bible where divorce is, is allowed, but as long as you are married to them, they are your one. So if you are married, that person that you are married to is the one. And the way that God has showed that is that you're married to them. So in that sense, you can't be married to the wrong person. Like I say, there are reasons for divorce, but there are never reasons in the Bible for cheating. 
to saying, well, I'm with this person, but actually my one is this woman at work or uh, this man uh, that I know from uh, university or my childhood. Actually, the one for you is your, your spouse. So yes, I do, but with those two provisos. Okay, if you have any more questions about those things, do feel free to uh, stick them on a blue slip or come and chat to me afterwards. We're going to delve into our passage now. Uh, So you might find it helpful to have it open at Genesis 10. I want to start off by saying that the Bible's agenda is not always our agenda. What I mean by that is that we come to the Bible with our own questions, with our own issues... And it sometimes seems, doesn't it, that the Bible comes at us with its own questions and its own issues that we don't quite seem to understand. Why, for example, do we have here a whole chapter devoted to the names of nations, lots of which have passed into dust? Why did God put that there? It seems that that is answering a question that we don't have. Well, the book of Genesis, like any other book in the Bible, has an author. Obviously, God is the ultimate author. Um, But it has a human author as well, and an original readership. There were people that it was written to. Now, when we looked at this book in January, on Sunday evenings, we said that the Bible's contention is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So as we read Genesis, this is Moses uh, penning these words to us. And he wrote it to the Israelites while they were travelling in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness generation frequently wondered whether they'd made the right choice. You see that all the way through the book of Exodus. Did we make the right choice leaving Egypt? And should we really go on and press uh, press on into the promised land? And we argued back last year that the book of Genesis seems to have been written not just to write an interesting history of how the world came about, but also it was written with a purpose. And the purpose was to convince the fickle wilderness generation that leaving Egypt and pressing on to Canaan was the right thing to do. That leaving Egypt was right and that pressing on into Canaan to take it is right. So what we have here in Genesis is true history. But the editorial decisions that Moses makes are made with those things in mind. It's a bit like when we looked at the, the Gospels with the, the children a few moments ago. We write with an agenda. The Gospel writers are writing with an agenda to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. And the decisions that they make about what they put in, what they leave out, are there to point us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. It's not that they're lying. They tell the truth, but they frame it in such a way to point you in that direction. And that's what's happening here in Genesis as well. It's to tell them that leaving Egypt and pressing on into Canaan is the right thing to do. But again, then, what has that got to do with us? Well, again and again in the New Testament, this is the generation that we're compared to. The wilderness generation that's fickle and keeps wanting to go back. Again and again, we're tempted not to press on to maturity, but to sort of go back to our old way of life. We've seen that again and again, haven't we, in the book of Hebrews as we've looked uh, through that. So as we hear this, as we read this together, we need to remember that they're sort of like us, the people who are being written to. But we're just going to have to do a bit more work than they did to, to see really what it means for us now. But it is said to us, and it really is to ask us to push on to maturity and to not go back to our old way of life. So as we look at the passage, we get a record here of 70 nations. And I want to argue that the 70 nations 
uh, are symbolic of the whole of humanity. Again, it's an editorial decision. In some of the lines, he goes down to the, the third generation. In some of the lines, he only goes down to the second. But it means then that the whole number adds up to 70. Seven symbolizing completion and ten meaning a lot. So they're a complete number of nations, a great number. So the impression that we're given here is that this is a comprehensive view of mankind as a whole. And because Noah has three sons, we've got three sections. Our first one is meet the parents. Meet the parents, verses one to five. I'll attempt to read them to us again. Richard did such a good job, I'm going to struggle now. Okay, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ritha, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans, in their nations. So here we have Japheth and his descendants. Now, you might not really have heard of these guys. And that's really because, actually, the descendants of Japheth are not big characters in the Bible. You'll struggle to find these places and peoples in the Old Testament. Uh, They sort of come up occasionally, but they're more sort of peripheral. They're on the outskirts uh, of the Bible. It's a bit like in, in Lord of the Rings... Uh, you get the other wizards that head to the east. And you, you know that they're sort of there and they're doing something, but you don't really know what's going on. Or if you're more into sort of modern stuff, you know, Star Wars, you get all these characters introduced. Uh, introduced, you then you don't find anything about them, and then they disappear. It's a bit like that with these characters here. So we get a few mentions of these places. So Tarshish, that might ring a bell if you're familiar with the Bible. It gets a mention, but... It's mentioned really is to show you that it's the ends of the earth. So it's where Jonah runs away to, for example. He runs away to Tarshish, or he tries to. And really, that's the furthest away that he can think of. He's trying to get as far away as he possibly can. Possibly Spain or, or, or Italy. He's really trying to go off the map, really, uh, for the Israelites. It'd be a bit like sort of Timbuktu. You know, he's, oh, he's gone to Timbuktu. Did you know Timbuktu is a real place? I always thought it was made up. Uh, it's actually a real place. But it's the idea of sort of back of beyond, as far away as you can get, completely off the grid. That's what Tarshish is. So it gets a mention, but it gets a mention because it is so off the grid. A few of them are mentioned in Isaiah 66 and in parts of Ezekiel. But again, as places that have never heard of God or what he's done. People are sent there in Isaiah to go and tell them at the end of the world about what God has done. To tell them the good news. It's sort of reminiscent of the apostles being sent to the ends of the earth. At the end to go tell people about the gospel. They're places that you trade with for exotic things that you can't find. So it'd be a bit like a few hundred years ago. The the Brits going to India and the Indies. You know, getting back these amazing spices and things like that. It was as far as you could imagine going. And a sign of prestige if you had stuff from as far away as you could possibly get. Gog and Magog get a mention as well in the Bible, but again, they're sort of mentioned as the ends of the earth. They're picked up in Revelation 6. Uh, you'll, see a, um, you'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. Revelation 6. We won't go into what it exactly means, but we'll just pick up the Gog and Magog bits. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Do you see Gog and Magog get a mention there, but as gathering them from the four corners of the earth. Again, this idea of far away as you can get. Kittim gets a few mentions, but it's only another name for Cyprus. It's geographically close to them, but it's still overseas. The Jews were not big seafarers. The seas are portrayed as dangerous where their enemies come from. So again, it's this idea of it being far away. Japhethites, on the other hand, seem to love the sea, don't they? The second thing we really see about them is that their fate is linked to the seas and expansion. We don't know whether verse 5, which talks about them as coastland people, refers to the whole lot of them or just the sons of Javan. Um, But it seems characteristic of the group as a whole that they're always looking for the next frontier, always looking over the horizon. These are the explorers, the sailors of the Bible. Japheth's very name means expansion. And it doesn't seem as though that's a, a malicious thing, as though he's sort of expanding on others' territory. It's more that it's almost off the screen, off the grid, out of the way. The Japhethites, if you like, are the sons that bolted at the first chance to go. And this, guys, is our line. That's why I've called it Meet the Parents. The Japhethites are us. Most of us this morning, if if not all of us, will be Japhethites. We are descendants of Japheth. If you've got Celtic blood in you this morning, Shane Richard's not with us, being uh, with the, uh, he's with the um, uh, young folk. But if you've got Welsh or Scottish blood, you're probably Gomorites. Uh, he's the, the person listed there in verse 2, uh, descendant of Japheth. The Gauls seem to have descended for him initially Gaulatia in Turkey and then uh, off into Europe. But we might have some other heritage in us. But Europeans as a whole are descended from Japheth. And this holds up linguistically and culturally. Culturally, This is a grouping of peoples. History and biology call us Indo-Europeans, but the Bible calls us Japhethites. And this really is where we fit in the story in one sense. Uh, one of the reasons then that the Old Testament is hard for us to understand is that actually biologically and culturally, that's not us. We're off the grid, we're off the map. So we need to be careful as we read the Bible, not just to appropriate the whole of history as our own. Because actually, biologically and historically, we're, we're off the grid, we're off the map. But that said, we will find out that this is relevant to us. But it's not going to be about biology and heritage. Because biology and heritage aren't anything. They're not the dividing wall that we expect them to be. But there is a dividing wall in our passage and a battle. And we see that in our next section. Meet the enemy. Verses 6 to 20. I'll read it to us again. <clears throat> the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth here, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kale, that is the great city. 
Egypt fathered Ludim, Adamin, Lahabim, Naphtulim, Pathrusim, Kathluthim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kathtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamarathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon, in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, and their lands, and their nations. <coughs> now, as we read through those verses, some of those place names and people might have seemed a bit more familiar. Egypt, Canaan, the Philistines, Babel, or the words Babylon, Nineveh, Assyria, Sidon, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites. Actually, it reads as a bit of a list of Israel's most wanted, doesn't it? In terms of Israel's history, the people that attacked Israel. These are actually their enemies all the way through the Bible. Especially think of Egypt and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. What direction do these people go? Well, they go in the direction of Gaza, which is home of the Philistines. They go in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not the best place to be associated with, is it? So these people, well, they're they're sort of a collection of all the baddies, if you like, of the Old Testament. It's a bit like one of those Doctor Who Christmas specials, you know, where where they've got the the, the Cybermen, and then suddenly they've got the Daleks, and and then they've got the Weeping Angels, and they all sort of gather together, don't they? Well, this is supposed to read like that. That's the Hamites, the baddies. And within the list, we get a sort of case in point. We get a sort of case study with Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is only mentioned twice in the Bible elsewhere. Once in 1 Chronicles, which is a repeat of this passage. And also then just in terms of the land of Nimrod, meaning Assyria. But he gets a surprising amount of space here, doesn't he? And I want to argue that really he gets all this space because he's the archetypal Hamite. He's a sort of typical Hamite. He's what you're to expect with their line. It seems as though Nimrod had the first empire of the world after the flood. It calls him a hunter. Now many have suggested through history that uh, he's a hunter of men. It's the sort of idea that he's a violent person. I actually suspect it's more that he's a hunter. That's what he means, he hunts animals. Hamites seem to like to hunt. And as we read through Genesis, this will come up again. History has a, a habit, doesn't it, of repeating itself. And the next time we'll meet a hunter... It's going to be Esau. Esau who likes to go out hunting and bringing back game for his father. You see, that son of Abraham, uh, sorry, um, son of uh, Isaac, is going to behave like a Hamite. He's going to look like one of these guys. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're told. Actually, Esau's descendants will turn into one of Israel's enemies, the Edomites. So Moses is showing us this to help us get a handle on what's going on later in Genesis. But the places that he has as his empire will also be Israel's future enemies, Babylon and Assyria. We're going to get another attack on Babylon, if you like, another reason to not like Babylon in the next passage when we look at the Tower of Babel. But where does it start? It starts here with Nimrod. Now, we have no idea in history exactly who this guy is. 
I've spent quite a bit of time this week trying to find out. Uh, history seems quite obsessed with Nimrod. But the, one of the reasons it's so hard is that there are so many candidates. There are so many people in this area at this time that seem bent on making empires, on attacking and building uh, big empires that attack other people. Actually, it shows you that this is typical of what was going on at the time. Ruthless empire building seems to have been the order of the day in that part of the world. So Nimrod is here to sort of show us what a typical Hamite is like. But again, why is he showing this as about Ham? Well, it's all a fulfilment of Noah's words. If you look back at chapter 9, with that incident that we <clears throat> won't mention too much, in chapter 9... Noah pronounces a curse on Ham. It's a bit confused because he uses the word Canaan, which is one of Ham's children. But really it's a curse on the whole of the, uh, the tribe of Ham. So in verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And then again in 26, Blessed be the Lord of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. There's a sort of curse on Ham. Ham is, is going to be the baddies. And Ham is to be subdued by the others. There'll be a battle between Ham and Shem all the way through the Bible for supremacy. It's almost as though Ham has taken over the mantle from Cain. If you were around uh, last year on Sunday evenings, we had this sort of line of Cain that was bad. Well, Ham sort of takes this on. He's going to be the symbolic of the forces of evil in the world. And he's to be subdued by the line of Shem. And again, if you think about this in terms of the original readers, remember the, what was the argument? Well, leaving Egypt was good. Well, Egypt was a descendant of Ham. And going and attacking Canaan and taking Canaan was also what they were to do. And they were a descendant of Ham as well. That's why you get the list of all those different tribes. Actually, he's saying, look, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how God has set up the world, that you are to remove Ham, if you like. You're to battle against him. That's not to say that all Hamites are bad, any more that all Shemites, or Semites as we often call them now, are good. But the flow of the Old Testament from this point will be Shem and Ham in battle with each other, trying to have supremacy each over the other. And when the world is sort of turned upside down, that will be when the Shemites are slaves of the Hamites. So think about it, when they're in Egypt, when they're in Assyria, when they're in Babylon... It's as though God's turned the world upside down. God is turning the tables on his own people in judgment against them. I should also say, though, it doesn't mean that all Hamites should be slaves. We've got to be particularly careful about this, especially since Ham means dark or burnt. The places where he moved are mainly south and west, that is to say, into Africa. It's not saying in this passage, by any means at all, that Africans should be slaves. Indeed, no Africans should be slaves. No human beings should be slaves. We can be proud of our evangelical heritage that brought the awful slave trade to an end. But what it's pointing us to here is that there are two lines in the world, a cursed one and a blessed one. And here it's not linked to biology. Actually, it's linked to something else. Because in the New Testament, we see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 9. He's almost certainly a Hamite and, and black. We see Simeon, who was called Niger in Acts 13, with the disciples, again, almost certainly black. 
It's not to do with ethnicity. We see glimpses of the old, actually, that Hamites came in. Rahab in Jericho, the Gibeonites, the Ninevites of Jonah's day. All of those were Hamites, and they were all blessed by God. So actually, the two lines are not to do with biology, and we'll we'll see a bit more at the end. But equally, not all Shemites are blessed. It's not quite as clear-cut as that. And we're going to see that in our last section, or next section, sorry, Meet the Future, verses 21 to 32. I'll just give you a second to glance down that rather than attempting to read it all again. But the last section is the Shemites. They come last not because Shem is the youngest, but because it's the godly line. The godly line in Genesis, for some reason, always seems to come last. And we get a bit of more of a complete picture now. So if you ever wondered what the world sort of looked like in these days, it's a bit hard to see with the sun. But this is basically the complete picture that we get by the time we get to Shem, with the red Jacobites in the north, the Hamites there in green, and the Shemites in yellow. This is roughly where they went to and and what they did. And we're told a bit more about Shem than Ham or Japheth. He's the elder brother of Japheth. Well, it's a bit of a confusing sentence. It's actually more likely that Japheth was his elder brother. We can't be sure either way because of the wording. But it seems all the way through Genesis that God prefers the second born. So I think Shem's actually second. (laughs) But the big thing about him that we're told is that actually he's the father of Eber. Uh, He's the father of Eber. So um, that might seem a little bit strange. Eber is his great-grandson, and yet it seems as though that's given as the the reason that he's famous, if you like. Rather than being the son of Noah, is that he's the grandfather of Eber. Eber is the one from all Hebrews are named. So in Greek, his name is Heber, uh, and that's where we get our word Hebrew from. Abraham is called a Hebrew. And actually, the usual name for the Israelites in Exodus, when Moses is writing, is the Hebrews. That's what they're called. And we saw in Genesis before the significance of numbers. Um, We saw that Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and that's actually picked up in Jude in the New Testament. Well, Eber is 14th. He's the next seven along. And I imagine there's some amazing untold stories about Eber that we won't know until we get to, to glory. There's all sorts of myths and legends around him. But it does seem that he lived around the time of the Tower of Babel. He named his son Peleg. You see that there in verse 25? To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided. That word divided there is used three times elsewhere in the Bible. One Chronicles in the repeat of this passage. In Job to describe a river sort of forking off into two different directions. And then in Psalm 55, which you've got on your notice sheets. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. There, actually, it's a reference to God dividing languages. So it's almost certainly a reference uh, to the time when they were divided. More on this next week as we look at Babel. But other than the mention of Eber, it's a pretty average list of nations. We hear of some in the Old Testament. We don't hear of others. Some places sound a bit like the Garden of Eden, like Orphir and Havilah, perhaps looking forward to uh, the new Eden, the restoration of Eden and the end of the curse. But on the whole, there's not really much about them. But as we go through scripture, we find that these are the nations that are pretty sympathetic to Israel, though not always as we see with Esau. But this is the line that we follow through scripture. 
And it will get more specific as we sort of narrow it down. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks' time as we look at the line of Shem more specifically. But it's a pretty average line, but it is the good line. It's the godly line that we're going to see and that we're going to follow through Scripture. So just three points of application to finish. What can we take from what we've seen? It seems like a a rather strange, eclectic list. Well, the first thing that we can see, first of all, is that there's no place for racism. No place for racism. One of the big things that we see, actually, is that we're all descended from one man. Firstly, Adam, and then again through Noah. There's only one race in the world, the human race. What matters is not the colour of your skin or your background. What matters is your relationship with God. And that's the real division, the real two lines of the world. Not ethnicity, but theology. And in the end, there are only two heads. Not Ham and Shem, but Adam and Christ. And anybody, whether you're a Hamite or a Shemite or a Japhethite, you can have Christ as your head. You can join in his kingdom, in his nation, if you like, no matter what your ethnicity. So it's never fall into the trap of racism. All human beings are our kin, and we must never forget that. Of all the isms that we can be accused of as a church, let's make sure that racism isn't one of them. Nobody should be discriminated against because of the colour of their skin. And that implies inside and outside the church. So if you have an issue with race this morning, I urge you in Christ to get over it. Because those issues have no place in the church. The second thing that we see as we look at this diverse list is that diversity is not a product of sin. Diversity is not a product of sin. This division of humanity is not presented as sinfulness. In fact, it's an attempt not to be scattered in the next chapter that God will put an end to. The empires that we look upon so negatively and that Nimrod started are generally attempts to make everybody the same. It's worth remembering, isn't it, that God made each star in the sky and he made each one of them different. And the same is true with people and the same is true with nations. And that's not a sin. God did it. God planned it that way. So Acts 17, verse 26 and 27, again, you'll see it on your notice sheet. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Why did God set up the nations this way in Genesis 10? Well, he did it so that we would seek God. I wonder if it's almost that God put us out of our home, if you like. He put us into these countries so that we might seek to go home. So in other words, we know where our home is. We've got it in our hearts. It's Eden, back with God walking in the garden. But actually God's put us out of our home, into the nations, so that we might seek to come back. So what I mean by that is that our homeland is not really our home, is it? England isn't our home. Dare I say it, Yorkshire isn't our home, really. All of us have a yearning for our true home. God's put us in various places that aren't home so that we might seek to go back. Our hearts yearn for that return to Eden, the place we were created to be, walking with God in the cool of the day. Our hearts yearn for God because we're away from him and we won't find true rest until we find him. And in the meanwhile, God is a big fan of diversity. 
Just look at the Garden of Eden that God made back at the beginning of Genesis. All sorts of fruits and flowers, animals and birds. There's an extravagance in the diversity. Look at the world around you this afternoon with the sun out, the wonderful plants, the animals. God made everything diverse. So it's okay to be different within the boundaries of Scripture, both to the prevailing culture outside and even to the prevailing culture within church as well. So, do you know, it's okay if you don't like books. That's really okay. If you don't like board games. If you don't like 10,000 reasons. I'll give you one of those that I don't like. And you can ask me about it afterwards. But that's okay. We're all to be different. And I'm convinced that heaven will be the most diverse place that we've ever known. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We won't all be the same. But what will be the same is our love for Jesus and his great sacrifice for us. And then finally, the third thing that we see is the three lines only come back together in Christ. Ultimately, the three lines of Shem, Ham and Japheth only reunite in Jesus. We've already mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch and Simeon, the, um, known as Niger. But think of Lydia, the, the Philippian jailer of countless people in Corinth, of countless people in Corinth and Rome. The three lines reunite in Christ. And all of it was foretold. Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt into Assyria. And the Assyrians will wor- sorry, the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third. Uh, with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. Saying blessed be Egypt my people. And Assyria the works of my hands. And Israel my blessing. Uh, so my inheritance. There was always supposed to be this reuniting. There was always supposed to be the bringing in of Ham and Japheth. It was no mistake that Jesus sends out 70 or 72 disciples uh, to preach in Luke's gospel as he goes out to uh, Israel. There's some dispute over whether it's 70 or 72, but it's okay. Because actually in Genesis 10 there's some dispute whether it's 70 or 72. It's between those two numbers. So whichever one it is, I'm sure that Jesus sent out uh, that number. But the idea is of going out to the nations, bringing in the peoples. Luke is concerned for the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Genesis 10 is the last time we see the whole of humanity together in the Bible until the church in the book of Acts. As we see Jew and Gentile, Shemite and Hamite, Hamite and Japhethite loving one another. Caring for one another. Becoming brothers and sisters again in Christ. So this morning I urge you to leave behind your Hamite or Japhethite and worship the God of Shem. Don't return to the old, but grasp hold of the new in Christ. In him there are no Jew or Javanite or Gomorite or Canaanite. All are one in Christ, bought by his blood. And our job is to take that news out to the nations. Which is the theme of our last song. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves.